0: Thank you for preparing us, worship team. I feel I could go home. I'm happy. Um, Thank you for that music. Thank you for your preparation. Well, good morning. I'm Scott. As he said, Um, this was my wife, Allison. Um, My sons are over here, and they're they're there's such hatred in their eyes right now as I introduce them. But my middle son is uh, Scott. He has just graduated from high school. He's going to KSU. And um, yeah, so there we go. And uh, then Ethan is going into the 12th grade as a senior next year. Senior right now, officially. So uh, this is Ethan on the left here. Yes, yes. Notice the dignity of his salute. And then Jonathan. Jonathan's my card. He is going into the 10th grade and so he was a barrel of laughs so uh, hey Jonathan there he is Yes, I'll pay for this later alright we, uh, we are from uh, Canton we live in Canton, been there about, I don't know, nine years up in Georgia nine years, eight years in Canton and um, we love it up there in the foothills and um, so uh, we are soon to be hopefully in Jasper so that'll be fun uh, as well, just north of Canton and uh, we go to school in Ackworth we are from Jacksonville, Florida, so uh, we take a trip uh, once or twice a year, maybe three times a year to go see our families in Jacksonville and Fernandina Beach, that's where we're on the way, and so we get a week to, uh, to suffer at the beach, so we are looking forward to that. So uh, anyway, we're happy to be here, happy to come back, had a wonderful time at 8.15 or whatever time that was, 8.45, and uh, so it was a, a wonderful, sweet, godly group of folks over there. And uh, so, anyway, uh, if you'll turn to Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 6, and if you want to go ahead and be assertive, you can put your finger in Philippians, at the very end we're going to be most likely in Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3. So Isaiah 6 and Philippians chapter 3. I want to talk to you this morning um, about... Make sure my little pointer's working. I want to talk to you this morning. There we go. About leadership. I want to talk to you about influence. I want to talk to you about the opportunity that we, as the body of Christ, that I have not seen in my lifetime, uh, that is right now, to be agents of change. Leaders, influencers, agents of change. The opportunity, now listen to me, the opportunity to live out loud and have a profound impact. Unlike we've had in quite a while. I believe the church has an opportunity to stand in the midst of our culture. Our culture is very angry right now. Our culture is is contentious. We just can't get along civility it doesn't exist right now. And I think the church has an opportunity to reposition itself to be an influence. Think of Joseph in Egypt, Daniel in Babylon. That kind of opportunity that they availed themselves of. To be a powerful leader To step out and lead, to step out and be as a church, as a Christian, wherever you are, your particular field or sphere of influence, to be an influencer. Think of the word influence. Think of the word uh, uh, change agent. To live out loud as a Christian. What do I mean? I I mean being God-centered. That's what I want to talk about this morning. To be an influencer by being, I want to use the word God-centered. Where everything in your life is in orbit around God. Every decision, every principle, every value, ambition, plan, your reflex is God. Everything rotates and revolves around God. No decisions are made without checking in with God. No plan, no behavior is, is, is... demonstrated in life without an awareness of how this reflects on God and I think our culture is starving um, for the church to step back in we used to be like this I I, I have to say I think we have we have marginalized ourselves as a body of Christ in this generation we, we have put ourselves sort of out of the fray. That's not our business. We're over here. And it's well-intentioned. It's to enhance the gospel and to stay clear on the gospel being the most important thing, and it, and it is. But somehow in our, 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 our loving effort to be relevant, we have made ourselves irrelevant because we are marginalized. We are in the shadows. We're off to the sidelines, and we don't participate in national conversations. And when we do, it's not clear. It's confusing. It's not God-centered. And I think there's an opportunity. I think that the culture is hungry for, for someone with, with strength, with, for, with a people, the people of God, the way we've done in our nation in the past, and we're not doing it now. Uh, a healthy people, a solid people, people with character, people who with, are clear on their principles, who are gracious when they talk about what they believe in or gracious when they talk about societal ills and, and, and with wisdom wisdom explain with courageous clarity what God says about situation X or situation Y. And these are moments, a lot of times, that they're really pre-evangelistic times, and the gospel is in our backpack, a pocket, ready to be pulled out as we've had influence in one sector, and then we step into what's really important, or most important, the gospel of Jesus Christ but it takes a god centered people to have that kind of place that kind of that kind of stature in our culture and i want to regain that folks i really want to regain that and so i want to go back and understand what does it mean to be that kind of person i want to use the term god centered and it begins being god centered begins with having A dominating vision of who God is, who He's revealed Himself to be, to not be unclear and hazy and really nonchalant how we think about God and how we describe them to the public, but it's rock-solid biblical clarity. and with that kind of clarity under our feet, then we, then, we, then we have influence. Then we are God-centered and we make an impact. You see? Well... There we go. A.W. Tozer said, What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He was a theologian in the, in the 20th century. What, let that sink in. What comes to our minds when we think about God, listen, is the most important thing about us. It makes us who we are, especially in, in how we express God's God in the culture in our homes in our schools talk about an arena where God needs to be presented with clarity wow what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us so I want to talk about what it means to be God centered Paul said it like this Set your minds on things above. Have your mind set on higher things. Don't let your life be taken over by trivia, silly things. Some things are fun. There's things of this life that have nothing, no connection to God whatsoever, as it were, and they're fun and they're good. But they cannot be the dominating thing of our lives. It's not what we're known for. We are a people whose minds are set on things above, first and foremost. The governing principles of life are the high, lofty things of Scripture, of God, you see. It's not the things of the earth, not the things the herd runs after, believes in. We're different. This verse means be God-centered. So look at Isaiah chapter 6. Look at Isaiah with me, chapter 6. Isaiah is a guy just walking through life, living life, just doing his thing. He's got plans. He's on his way somewhere. And God arrests him. On the road shows us plan. You see, on some particular day, God shows up in Isaiah's life. In the year of King Uzziah's death is when this happened. I saw God. I mean, I just imagine Isaiah going back home after this happened. I saw God. What's up, Isaiah? Something's. What's up? You're. What's. What's wrong with you? I saw God. I saw him. No, no, I really, I saw him. It was incredible. It reminds me of after the resurrection. I've been reading that in my devotional time. The ladies, when they come back from the the tomb, and to the the disciples who were so skeptical, and they said, "We, he's, what's wrong?" They're just speechless, and they're not speechless, and he's he's alive. I saw him. We touched him. That's, that's what's going on with Isaiah here. I can imagine him going home to his wife and saying, you never believe what happened. I can hardly believe. It. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. Those are weak words, really, for what he's trying to express. But this is all he's got. Lofty. He was a, he was. He was exalted. He's sitting on this throne. It was just on his throne. And the train of his robe, he it was, it was, it was in the temple and it was just filling the entire temple. And these angels were there. They had six wings each. And they began talking. And look at verse 4. It was so loud. It was so loud. I, I, I could hardly stand it. They were saying, verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh, is what the word is, Yahweh, the eternal one, the I am, who commands armies. He is holy. Holy. He is beyond. He is other than. Holiness means transcendent, unique, beyond the human. He's holy. The eternal one is holy. He commands armies. And the whole earth is a manifestation of his glory. Everything you see out there, it, it it brings glory to God. It's His. And while they were shouting these, this anthem, the temple was filling with smoke. You should have seen it. I saw God. And something happened. That's why God's centeredness begins with a, a biblical vision of God a clear understanding of who God says he is not something watered down not something we think is more palatable that's a golden calf what the Bible says about God that's what's holy and when you get that kind of vision of God something happens verse 5 can I translate for you No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Isaiah says, woe is me. I am undone. You know what undone means? I'm coming apart at the seams. He thinks he's going to be vaporized because he's standing as if walking where he didn't belong. He walked in on God and the beams of his glory how can a vapor know him? He knew what God said to Moses back in Exodus 33, I believe. No one can look directly at me and survive. It's just a physical reality. The human body can't, can't tolerate it. And he thinks he's going to die. He recognizes where he is and what he's seeing. And he's seeing this, this, the holiness of God, his power. And he's bracing for disintegration, for being vaporized. (laughs) At the same time, as he's seeing his power, it's intuitive to him that this being is righteous. He's heard it. He knows it, he believes it, but he is seeing somehow intuitively it's his power, the physical reality is why he's about to die, but also his righteousness, the being's righteousness and his wrath are so evident to him that that's why he's about to be vaporized, in other words, judged. Because he says, woe is me, I am ruined, I'm coming apart, Because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among the people who are just like me. It's just a poetic in that he's describing his own sin. He locates it in his mouth, what he says is a reflection that he's a sinner. And and I dwell among a, a, a whole nation of sinners and I should be judged. And so he's bracing himself, having this vision. So when he sees God, he is humbled. He is brought to his knees as he, when he sees who God really is, he sees himself as he really is. But God in his love and mercy sweeps down with that angel and tells him, No, 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 relax. Do not fear, you're not gonna die. Your sins are forgiven. I'm looking into your heart and I see faith that is righteous, and a Redeemer's coming later, and He is going to pay for your sin. You're forgiven. Peace. So now He's seeing the righteousness and the love and the mercy of God in this encounter with God all at once. And it's just sweeping His mind as a whirlwind of emotion. And something happens when he got a vision of God as God reveals himself, as God has said, This is who I am. He sees it. And what happens? In verse 8, God speaks. And he says, I need somebody. Doesn't say what. I need somebody. And Isaiah has been changed. And he says, Me. Take me. I'll go. I don't know what, I'll go. I don't know what you want, it doesn't matter. I'm yours. And there's this absolute surrender to God. This is a good man, but something changed in him here. And he becomes the most prolific prophet in Israel's history for at least how long and how much he prophesied. God, how much God used him. When you get a vision for God, if you want to be a God-centered person, you've got to get a, a biblical vision of God. And it'll but I warn you, it's gonna change you because you're gonna see what you're like on the inside, and it's gonna humble you, and then you're gonna acknowledge your dependence on his forgiveness and his mercy, and you're going to surrender. That's that's what ought to happen. We ought to be surrendered completely. And we become this God-centered Christian, not someone who just took the money and ran got their ticket to heaven and just sitting comfortably. You become a surrendered, God-centered Christian. Exodus 15 says, Who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in your holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders, Isaiah later quoting God, a direct quote from God I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me, there is no God. Though you have not known me, I will gird you. That all men may know, I'm going to have a relationship with you, that all men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun, there is no one out here, as it were, but me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I am the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and causing calamity, difficulty, difficult things. I am the Lord who does all these things. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Paul has been explaining what it means to be saved, and he, he just amazed at God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Great word for us, Lord, and abundant in strength. You see that? that? That's sort of a vanilla word for us. But, but, but David is trying to express... Absolute's here. He's trying to to express absolute, great. Absolutely great is the Lord. He is abundant in His power. He is omnipotent. There's nothing He can't do. He has unlimited power. This is the vision that God wants us to have of Him and to take with us and engage our life with it. Not lock it up here on Sunday morning and go out and live not even remembering what we read. This this should govern and dominate and control your life tomorrow, you see. His understanding, one expression of his omnipotence, his understanding is infinite. Infinite. There's nothing he doesn't know. Nothing comes into your life that he's he's not ready for. He planned it. You see? God is holy. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time trying to define it. This would take weeks. In my church, we did take weeks doing this. But let's just drop him in. He is a triune being. He is omnipotent, unlimited power. He is eternal. He is sovereign. He is righteous. He is love. He is truth. What I really want you to do... I want to do is not def- try to define it. I want to show you what a God, that's a vision of God, but in turn, I want to show you what a God-centered person looks like. I think that's a better way to do this. What does a Christian look like who is centered on God, who knows God deeply, personally, and biblically? There they are. You remember the story after they left Egypt. They go right up to this back door, as it were, of the promised land. And, Mo, and God has already told them, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to give you this land. It's a beautiful, fertile land flowing with milk and honey. This is my plan. This is what we're going to do. And I'm going to, I'm going to fight your battles for you. And we are going to go in. We're going to annihilate the Canaanite race because they are under judgment. This is the plan. They send ten spies in. Twelve spies. Two of which are Joshua and Caleb. When they come back, the ten spies acknowledge. They've been gone, I don't know, was it 40 days, I think? When they come back, they acknowledge this is a fertile land. This is a beautiful piece of real estate, but, and they quickly go to the but, and they say, listen, but we can't do this. There ain't no way we are going to take control of this land. They have armies. Their abilities are far be- We're not an army. These are armies with iron chariots and iron weaponry. These are cities that have walls that, that, are, that are invulnerable. The walls of Jericho are one of the seven wonders of the world. And on top of that, there is a race of giants in the land, a race of Goliaths in the land. And they begin to talk, and they begin to foment this crowd, and they begin to worry, and they begin to fear, and they're getting upset. It turns into a mob, a coup is planned. They're going to assassinate Moses and Aaron, God's prophet, and they're going to pick a new leader. They're shaking their fist at God, and they're going to go back to Egypt and see if they can negotiate to re-enslave themselves to Egypt. Stem. This is an insane moment. This is a violent moment. And these two guys step in. The only two of the 12 spies step in and say no. They stand in front of a mob on the verge of murder and assassination, and they say no. Caleb speaks for the two of them. he said, we should by all means go up and take possession of this land, for we will surely overcome it. What he actually says after this is, they will become our prey. That's kind of sassy talk. Considering what they said was in the land, they're not an army. They're giants. They have iron. The, the walls, there's no way we can get through these walls. And he says, they're going to become our prey. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land. Now, you have to see behind this statement that the theology of God here, he has got his one foot firmly planted on the omnipotence of God and the other on God's sovereignty, and he is in control. He decides what happens in the universe, and he has decided this is what we're going to do, so we're going to do it, and I have no idea how, but we're going to do it because God is all-powerful and he is sovereign. Who talks like this? Can I ask you that question? Who, who talks like this? Who does things like that? Stands face to face with a mob, with murder in their eyes, and says no. Hundreds, thousands of people are ganging up. Who does that? Two men that have a, 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 a vision of God and who he really is, his power and his might and his righteousness and so forth. Two men who are God-centered. You remember Joshua and that scene well later on he's the leader Moses is in heaven this is 40 years later that whole generation died in the wilderness God did not give him the promised land because of what happened on that day it was over but the only two of that generation that survived were Joshua and Caleb because they were faithful they were God-centered they lived mighty They're the elder statesmen now, as it were. They're still mighty warriors, though. And and Joshua's the leader, and he's made a treaty. They've got a decent army now, and he is the leader. And he's made a treaty, and he told the city of Gibeah, if you're ever attacked, we'll defend you. They get attacked. So he puts the army together to defend them. And God meets him and says, this is going to be a good day. I'm going to help you conquer them. armies are enough. They, they attack and they're winning. They're routing these, these three armies or five armies that are there attacking Gibeah. What's so fascinating is at the same time his army is out there killing the, the bad guys, that God is hurling hailstones from heaven and killing more than the army is killing. It is a, an amazing, miraculous event taking place. It's about noontime, and Joshua realizes as he's routing this army, as as, as it's clear they're winning, and the army is retreating, these other armies, that between noon and sundown, he's not going to be able to chase them all down, and he needs to kill them all. That's the command. That he's going to lose them in the dark. It's very nonchalant, but it's bold. It's public. Listen, this is what our culture needs. It needs a public demonstration of who and what we are and what we believe without mincing our words, without shying away from being public about our our trust in God, our belief in His power, our embrace of His sovereignty. Joshua steps forward and prays this ridiculous prayer. O son, stand still at Gibeon. O oh, moon in the valley of Ajalon. <laughs> what? What did you just say? Joshua, are you crazy? Now, in our day, we understand the science, right? In this day, they didn't quite have the science right. What is, what is he really talking about, the sun standing still? This is literal. This is what he's asking. This is not a metaphor. What did he ask? Oh, God, stop the what? The earth from rotating on its axis. This is, to me, probably the, one of the greatest miracles in all the Bible, short of Genesis 1 and, and resurrecting the dead. He's, the whole planet stops. I mean, God says yes. Who's crazy enough to pray a prayer like this? A God-centered Christian. Who knows his God, his god 's power and his sovereignty and his eternality? He knows his God, and he steps forward and says, "God, you could do this if you wanted. I would love to see it. How about it And for twenty four hours, our earth did not spin, and all the natural disaster that should happen when that when the earth stops rotating it did not happen nature was held in check for 24 hours. The sun stood still. That really happened. Make a con- he really prayed that. That's crazy. Can I, can I make a confession? I want to be that crazy. I do. I really do. I need this inspiration today. I don't want to be a marginalized Christian. I want to live out loud. I want to go public with my faith. I want to go public with wisdom that God gives me about things that have nothing to do with the gospel. And I want to step into the fray of national conversations and speak wisdom. And speak for God in public. I want to be this crazy. I don't know about you. I do. Jehoshaphat. Anybody know Jehoshaphat's story? Funny name. Shows up in cartoons from time to time. As a kid, I thought it was funny. Jehoshaphat. Just a funny name, poor guy. After Solomon, David and Solomon go to heaven, the kingdom is split into two. Ten tribes of Israel go north and do their own thing. They're pagan, they're awful, and every single one of their kings was pagan, did not follow God, not a one of them. Okay? They finally get invaded by Assyria, they're conquered, and the northern ten tribes just disappear from history. Jude and Benjamin go their own way, and they follow uh, the, the, the line of secession of David. They have a handful of really all one of them, kings. The rest of their kings are bad. But there's a handful of them, Jehoshaphat being one of them. Jehoshaphat brings the nation to revival, tries to kill out all the uh, paganism and all the, the national sin that he can. And God gives uh, him great favor. The economy's great. They're prospering. Their military is strong believe in this story. I can't remember exactly, but I think it says God gives him peace on all sides during his reign. This is a pretty sharp guy, and he's following God. Everything's going really good, and then one day he's invaded. I believe in this story there were three armies that invaded. Someone comes and tell them they're camped in our backyard. They're here. And when he sees it or hears about it, as powerful as Israel's army is or Judah's army is at this point, he's afraid. Fear emerges. Now, the best of us have moments of fear, but it's what we do with that fear in a difficult situation of life. And he sees that fear coming heading right at him. And he doesn't want its tentacles to get around him and start to strangle him and make him make bad decisions and put God in a bad light by how he behaves. Pray. So what does he do? His reflex is to simply pray and call for a national prayer meeting. Bring everybody down to the Capitol. We're going to pray. He doesn't assemble the army. He assembles a prayer meeting. That's his reflex. That's what he does with fear. That's what he does with something he cannot handle. And what does he pray? Listen to the theology that undergirds this prayer. One foot on the omnipotence of God, the other foot on God's sovereignty. O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? This is rhetorical. I know And are you not ruler over the kingdoms of the nations? I know you are. Power and might are in fact in your hand. He's praying this out loud in front of everyone. He's not shy about putting his faith on the line toward God so that no one can stand against you. Who prays radical prayers like that in radical moments? A God-centered Christian who knows his, he knows his God deeply, personally, biblically. There is no question about who's in charge and who has omnipotent power. Who knew this was coming? Who's omnipresent? Who is righteous? Who is loving? Who is faithful to keep his word? There is no question, now do what you're going to do. God gives them a plan and God actually kills all three armies without Israel killing anyone. (coughs) Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. One of my favorite stories in all the Bible is the first seven chapters of of Daniel. I love that story. What a great illustration of how a Christian lives in a totally secular environment. And you got Daniel and these three guys. If you remember, Judah finally goes wayward fully, and God warns them through Isaiah that Babylon's going to conquer you one day because of your sin. The implication is unless you repent. They did not repent. Nebuchadnezzar comes in Daniel chapter 1 and conquers Judah. He sacks Jerusalem. He sieges it for a while. He comes back two more times. The Jewish culture is obliterated. A lot of blood. A lot of death. A very dark day. Nebuchadnezzar has the wherewithal, the intelligence, To abduct some of the nobles' children, before he killed their parents, he took some of the children and the royal family children back to Babylon to train them in Babylonian stuff and use them as a diplomatic corps to help manage this newly conquered people, the Jews. That's what he did. That's how he conquered and ruled afterwards. Well, long story short, we don't have time to go into it, and I'm tempted, believe me, but as we... Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Basically, the dream based on God. God tells him, you're the greatest king that's ever lived. What does Nebuchadnezzar do? He is eat up with pride. What does he do? He makes a statue of himself. He doesn't learn anything from the Lord through that dream. He builds a statue to commemorate himself. And he calls all his diplomatic corps, hundreds of government officials... Into Babylon, the capital, and he plays, he has a ceremony, musical ceremony plan. When you hear the music, bow down and worship me. Tell me how awesome I am. They do that. But not these three guys. They've been promoted by Nebuchadnezzar himself because they're pretty sharp. There's 40, 50 Jewish kids. That have been abducted. Only four of them decide they're going to live for God. We don't know anything about the rest because probably they, they marginalized themselves. They blended in. They played it safe. They compromised their religion. But these four, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, betray, And they've been promoted. And when Nebuchadnezzar hears that three of his favorites have betrayed his trust, he's ticked off. And he brings them in and he says, listen, I don't want to hear any excuses. I don't want to hear your side of the story. We're going to try this again. He gets the band ready. When you hear the music, you better bow this time. And we'll forget the whole thing. If you do not, I will burn you alive. And the furnace is right there. They can feel the heat, see his fury, understand the moment. And what do they say? These guys are like 18, 19, 20 years old, Max. Oh, King, we do not need you to give us an answer. Don't bother going through the music thing again. Don't even bother. I'll tell you what's going to happen. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. You realize they're about to die by burning And listen to the theology that undergirds this confrontation. Our God is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, king, with all due respect. But even if he does not, even in his sovereignty, if he chooses to martyr us, then we're going to play the role of martyr. Let me give you our sermon before we die so you'll know, everyone will know, why we gave our lives. Even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods, that we are not going to worship the golden image that you have set up. We have one God we worship, and it ain't you. Now do what you must. In essence, that's what they said. Who does this kind of thing? Who has this kind of power about their life? A God-centered Christian who knows his God, and when he has a clear vision of God, as he's revealed himself, he is surrendered. Completely to Him. Come what may. We love Him if He delivers us. We love Him if He does not. But we will publicly stay devoted to Him no matter what. It's kind of, come what may. Our culture needs this kind of Christianity. Woven through the entire fabric. And when moments like this and moments for the gospel come up. We are positioned. When the culture is trying to figure out and solve some mundane, earthy thing, and we step forward and we're wise and we're sharp and we're solid because every day we live God-centered and we apply our wisdom, we build stature in their eyes. We build a platform that is what we might call pre-evangelistic. That's what Joseph was doing. That's what Daniel was doing. That's what these guys are doing. And then when it's time to actually explain that salvation comes by Jesus Christ and Christ alone, in public we say that because we love people we love our God and we love people what does a Christian look like who is centered on God he looks like that the last one I want to look at is the Jerusalem church if you'll remember let's set the scene from sort of an earthy perspective What happened to Jesus? Who won? The Pharisees and the Sanhedrin or Jesus? They won. What the public at large is seeing. They murdered Christ. They got him. They won. They stamped out this church thing. The way is what they originally called it. So what's happened? The church explodes after Pentecost. There's twenty to 30,000 instant Christians in Jerusalem at this time. And these guys are uncomfortable. And the last time stuff like this started to happen, they murdered, they cut the head off the snake as they saw it. Uh, their, their anger, it has no limits. Their determination to stamp out anything Jesus, it has no limits to it. So they grab the head of the snake now, which is these, uh, these uh, 11 apostles or 12 apostles. And they bring them in and say, guys, we're not going through this again. We killed your Jesus, the Nazarene. We will kill you too. Knock it off. Are we clear? And they, they send them out. Well, they go back to the church. A group of Christians from the Jerusalem church are assembled And they tell them exactly what they said. And what is their reflex response? These other guys might feel somewhat heroic as we've learned the Bible over the years. But this is sort of a grassroots group here. A bunch of no-name people. Like us. And what do they do? Oh Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth. The ground on this prayer is you are the omnipotent creator. You have unlimited power as demonstrated in Genesis 1. You who spoke, and they quote Psalm 2. You may not know this. This is Psalm 2 that they quote here. Why did the Gentiles rage and people devise futile things? It's it's one member of the Trinity talking to the other in Psalm 2 saying, In the millennium, the father's talking to the son. Why do they do this? Because there's an army, if you know, at the end of the millennium that tries to kill Jesus. After a thousand years of seeing Jesus on earth ruling and reigning, they still want to shake their fist at God. And Satan puts together this massive army to attack Jerusalem, to attack Christ. And that's what God is saying there. The Father is saying, why do they devise futile things? So, in essence, what's this church praying? The ground of this prayer is you have omnipotent power. We saw that at the beginning. You have sovereign, omnipotent power. We'll see that at the end of time. So, for truly in this city they were gathered against Jesus, whom you anointed. Now watch this. Both Herod and Pilate with Gentiles, the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. What are they saying? You are sovereign, you are omnipotent, and we don't know what you're going to do in this moment. They already killed Jesus, we don't know, and you predetermined that. Now it's for atonement, right? But from an earthly perspective, he let them kill Christ. So they're saying, We don't know if you're going to let them kill us, they're threatening us too. This is what they're praying. This is the preface to their prayer. Now, what do they ask? God, keep me safe and don't let him touch me. Is that what they say? Well, I guess that's okay to say, but that's not what they said. Here's a God-centered people praying a theologically rich prayer with power and courage. Look, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak the word of God with all confidence. Translation, don't let us be cowards. Don't let us shy away. Don't let us back into the shadows. Don't let these threats cause us to marginalize ourselves. And don't let them shout us into a corner. Don't you? And shout us out of the conversation. Folks, that's going on right now. You understand that, don't you? We are being shouted into the corner and told to hush. Keep your religion to yourself. Well, I'm sorry, that's not Christianity. Christianity is public. It's public adoration of God and love for people with the gospel. That's Christianity. I hope I can pray like that. I want that for me. I want that for you. Let me quickly end with this. You're in Philippians already, chapter 3, and we're going to wrap up. Anybody know what that is? I've shown you some pictures of uh, the universe, the the awesome things. I don't know if you've been paying attention to them, but it's awesome what you see in space. You know what that is? Uh, And that one, whoops, that one. Or that one? What about that one? I'll give you a hint. Or, and that, those are snowflakes. Isn't that amazing? There have been several people over this, I guess about a century now, who have been studying snowflakes. And as best we can tell so far, the, the conventional wisdom is there's not one alike. They are all, all unique. Stunning, isn't it? God is amazing. You're in Philippians 3. Let me sweep through this real fast so we can quit. Listen. Paul's explaining in Philippians 3, verses 12 to 16. Okay? Look at it in your Bibles. Philippians 3, verses 12 to 16. He is, he is characterizing how he lives his life. He uses the term I press on every day toward the goal of godliness i believe it's in verse 14 he says uh, one no verse 13 one thing i do that's how he characterizes his life it's about one thing fulfilling the will of god that's it and the only prize i need is heaven at the end i don't need anything of this earth heaven at the end is all and that's what i'm that's my finish line in the meantime, it's, my life is about one thing. I'm God-centered. I want to fulfill the will of God, whatever that may be. And where did that come from? Where did that God-centered passion come from? And focus. Look back at verse 7 and 8. He describes his mindset when he got saved. Verse 7 says, all the riches and fame and prominence I had as a Pharisee. That wasn't even worth it. I gave it all up because I needed to in order to be saved for the sake of Christ. Then verse 8, more than that, all things that anyone in this planet would consider treasure, worthy of of dedication, anything you can come up with on the human level, it's worthless. In view of, verse 8, the surpassing value, worthiness, awesomeness of Jesus Christ. That's a God-centered man. He saw Jesus on the Damascus Road and everything changes. Like Isaiah, he, he, he was overwhelmed by his sinfulness. The awesomeness of God brought him into being a surrendered, radically surrendered Christian to where his life was about one thing because of the surpassing value of Jesus Christ. What is God worth to you? What is He worth to you? Enough to be God-centered? Listen, let me encourage you. Get into your word, love scripture, and get all of it. Genesis rev on you and let God build this portrait of himself in your mind and heart. And embrace it and, and, and become this surrendered, God-centered person. And begin praying to God and asking him help you live that out. If you see verse 17 there at the end of Philippians 3... Here's what I would say, what Paul said. Follow my example. Join me. Join me in being God-centered. God-surrendered. You willing? Our culture is desperate for it. Our homes, our children, the people we know and we need this. For the glory of God and the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Let's pray.